Chapter Sixteen of the World's Lumber Room by Selina Gay. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Sixteen: Animal Remains and Ancient Dust Heaps. Since the rocks forming the Earth's crust have been deposited chiefly in salt water, as has been shown, it follows that the remains which they enclose will be mainly those of animals living in or near the sea remains of shells corals fish bones saurians etc are naturally abundant and so are fish scales a modern deposit of which is to be found on the shore near dundee some ten yards long and two or three feet thick these are the scales of herrings which fall off when the fishes are cleaned and being very buoyant and comparatively indestructible are thrown up by the waves the case of land animals is altogether different for with the vast army of hungry scavengers always on the watch no dead body is likely long to escape being devoured if it remain exposed and the circumstances under which it is likely to be buried and preserved are exceptional old land surfaces have occasionally been buried beneath sediment and where this has been the case animal remains are abundant at times they may be covered by the mud and sand of inundations at others by the sand which drifts in from the seashore and at times animals are overwhelmed by landslips or lost and that in considerable numbers in bogs and swamps while in limestone districts they fall into fissures or wander into caverns where their bones may be covered with a crust of stalagmite mammal remains are most abundant in the sites of lakes into which the animals were no doubt carried by flooded rivers sheep and cattle are often washed away even in england in the springtime and where rivers are larger snowfalls heavier and changes of temperature more sudden large numbers perish at times and may be carried away to lakes estuaries or even the sea during the great drought in the pampas several hundred thousand animals rushed into the river piranha and perished from lack of strength to crawl up the muddy banks again more than once the carcasses of above a thousand wild horses were seen together and as floods followed large numbers of skeletons were probably buried in mud many animals seem to choose spots to which they retire to die on the banks of the santa cruz there are places which are white with the bones of the guanaco at st jago there is a retired corner to which the goats betake themselves and every one remembers the elephant cemetery in ceylon to which sinbad was conveyed a dead elephant is never seen in that island nor are its tusks or any portion of its skeleton found the natives declare that the herd bury their deceased companions if these die before reaching the solitary valley to which they are supposed to withdraw on feeling the approach of death every one believes in the existence of this valley though it is mysteriously concealed from human eyes and sinbad recognized it at once when on recovering his senses after his alarming journey he Quote, found himself among the bones of elephants and knew that this was their burial place. End quote. 
birds having no such burial places and being less liable to be buried alive than other animals are less frequently found fossilized but when flying near volcanoes in a state of eruption they have often been observed to drop down killed by the noxious vapours and if buried in fine volcanic ashes not only their bones but the form of their bodies would be preserved moreover they sometimes fall into lakes when chased by hawks and those which build near water are sometimes surprised and swept away by a flood and in these cases if they do not float long enough to be devoured which being very light they probably do they may chance to sink and be buried in mud the chief remains of ancient birds are those of the large wingless kinds whose bones were filled with marrow instead of air which made their bodies considerably heavier and more likely to sink while their want of wings put them on a level with other animals the most extensive accumulations of organic matter due to birds are however the great guano beds of peru bolivia africa etc three-fifths of the guano is soluble so that one year of english weather would be enough to wash away many of the deposits entirely and on the west coast of south america there is owing to rain no guano worth mentioning except between latitude thirteen degrees north and twenty one degrees south while the locality in which it is most plentiful and most valuable is the rainless region of south peru it is only recently that europeans have learnt the value of guano but under the incas the birds were strictly preserved landing on the islands during the breeding season was forbidden on pain of death and overseers were appointed to give their proper share of the valuable commodity to each claimant at the right time in the Sincha islands off peru the beds are two hundred feet thick and the supply is almost inexhaustible in addition to the droppings of countless sea-birds which have resorted to these spots for centuries past the guano is also partly composed of the skeletons and eggs of birds and the bodies and bones of fishes and seals it has undergone much alteration by internal chemical changes and emits a strong smell of ammonia and since it consists chiefly of phosphate of lime with soda magnesia and sulphur it is a powerful fertilizer and enables even the sandy desert around lima to bear crops of maize osite or sombrero guano is brought from a small island in the west indies which is entirely composed of the bones of turtles and other marine animals together with coral sand etc which have been cemented into a compact mass by the droppings of birds a magnificent crimson called murexide has been obtained from guano while a fine purple has been found in the copros of serpents the latter substance which is very like plaster of paris was and maybe still is bought up at the rate of nine shillings a pound from the zoological society by a doctor or perhaps chemist what he did with it was a mystery to most people but no doubt he made the purpurate of ammonia from it the well-known fossils called coprolites consist chiefly of phosphate of lime and received their name because they were supposed to be the fossilized droppings of huge saurians or lizards and other animals 
but though some are no doubt true coprolites and all evidently result from the decay of animal matter they have generally lost all trace of organic origin and are simply nodules of bone earth which when ground or otherwise prepared make a valuable manure they are found in large quantities in the suffolk crag along with the bones and teeth of whales etc and are washed up in such abundance on the beach that people are constantly engaged in collecting them the beds vary from a few inches to several feet in thickness and are found in norway the west indies spain and south carolina but were first dug in cambridgeshire where dr henslow at once pronounced them to be bone earth which he said quote, we are at our wits end to get for our grain and pulse and are importing as expensive bones from buenos aires all animal matter contains a large proportion of carbon and as has been already mentioned it seems probable that many deposits of rock oil are derived from the remains of fishes mollusks crustacea and the other minuter forms of animal life of which many shales limestones etc are largely composed the siliceous flags of caithness for instance are impregnated with oily matter which is apparently due to the innumerable fishes embedded in them shells and the like are some of the most indestructible of animal remains but having already spoken of the vast accumulations of chalk and lime to which they have given rise we need only add that the soft earthy carbonate of lime called marl which is formed of fresh-water shells and occurs in layers and patches from one to several feet thick in bogs and old lake sites was at one time dug or dredged up as manure for the pastures the importance of lime and especially phosphate of lime to many crops may be seen by a glance at the mineral composition of their ash thus the ash of meadow hay contains eleven point six per cent of lime and six point two of phosphorus that of winter wheat four point nine of lime and seven point four of phosphorus and that of red clover has thirty four per cent of lime and nine point nine of phosphorus shell sand consisting of shelly coralline and other limey debris is often applied to clay soils especially by the french who value it highly and though a hundred thousand tons are taken every year from padstow harbour it is so abundant that much more might be used the name of fossil is given to all organic bodies animal or vegetable which have been naturally buried and more or less petrified or turned to stone many fossil shells are however scarcely at all altered and some even of the more ancient still retain not only their mother of pearl but even their colouring in others again as the animal matter or gelatine decayed water containing some dissolved mineral has filtered in and filled up all the interstices it may be with silica or it may be with some metal and the shell is thus more or less mineralized very often when the mud in which a shell has been buried has become hard the shell itself has been dissolved away and all that remains of it is a cast of the interior in hardened mud or stone and an impression of the exterior with an empty space between the two 
this empty space is again often filled with mineral matter so that we have a perfect cast of the whole shell inside and out the beds known as greensands are it is said largely composed of the minute internal casts of foraminifera whose tiny shells before they dissolved away were filled with silicate of iron and potash about two-thirds of a bone consists of the earthy matter phosphate carbonate etc already mentioned the remaining third is animal matter a sort of gelatin and as this decays mineral matter may filter in and the bone become petrified or mineralized both animal and vegetable substances may be mineralized to a certain extent in a few weeks or even days when steeped in mineral water occidental turquoise seems to be nothing more than fossil bone or ivory coloured by the infiltration of phosphate of iron while the true turquoise which it resembles but does not equal consists of phosphate of alumina coloured by copper but there is another and more wonderful method of petrifaction which is by no means uncommon to which we have alluded in chapter twelve in this the shell bone or tree trunk is neither mineralized by infiltration nor merely represented by a cast but the whole of its organization is faithfully reproduced a cast may give one a perfect idea of the appearance of any object as seen from within or from without but cannot show its structure whereas a model which is what this sort of petrifaction produces is an exact imitation each atom of the original substance is replaced by an atom of some other mineral the most common replacement is that in which silica is substituted for lime the former being as we have seen especially attracted by decaying matter strictly speaking these fossils are not therefore organic remains but perfect models of such remains some few extinct animals are represented however by more than fossils and more even than bones early in the present century the first mammoth still covered with flesh hair and wool was discovered in the ice by a siberian fisherman who possessed himself of its two great ivory tusks which he sold for fifty roubles and left the carcass for the white bears and dogs to feast upon two years later in eighteen o five the skeleton was still almost entire the animal measured sixteen feet in length and nine in height and from the long stiff black bristles and coarse red-brown hair and wool still remaining it was evident that it was a species of elephant fitted to live in cold regions long before it attracted the notice of naturalists the mammoth had been known to the siberian ostiaks who were so accustomed to finding the carcasses buried and preserved in the frozen ground that they firmly believed that the creatures lived there and only died when they smelt the air its long curved tusks they considered to be movable horns with which it dug its way through clay and mud the chinese knew it in very early times as the tian shu or giant rat a stupid inert animal which they said avoids the light and lives in dark holes and some of their learned men thought these earth rats might be the cause of earthquakes which they could not otherwise satisfactorily account for 
even late in the seventeenth century father avril when travelling in russia was told that the ivory he saw was procured by men who ventured their lives in attacking the creature which produced it which was as big and as dangerous as a crocodile the arabs seem to have been the first to develop the trade in fossil ivory and from the corruption of their word behemoth we get mammoth immense quantities of the bones and horns of the fossil rhinoceros are also thrown up on the shores of the polar sea and the inhabitants of the siberian tundras or swamps believe them to be parts of a colossal bird with which they declare that sundry persons have had terrific fights footnote the vast region of the tundras extends from sixty four degrees north latitude northwards to the coast for nine months of the year it is covered with ice in the summer it is a swamp producing nothing but moss End footnote. the claw of a griffin was presented to charlemagne and the russian merchants to this day never call the sword-shaped horns of the rhinoceros anything but grip claws as gold sand is found in some places where these claws are buried it is probable that the expression taking gold from under the griffins had its origin in this notion of the gigantic bird which also may have been the ancestor of the gold-guarding dragons of fairy lore nowhere are the remains of both mammoth and rhinoceros more plentiful than in the lowlands adjoining the icy sea multitudes are buried between the lena and kolima and one of the new siberian islands is little more than a mass of mammoth bones which have been worked for many years by the traders one single sandbank has furnished the best harvest of tusks for eighty years past and in eighteen forty four siberian ivory to the amount of sixteen thousand pounds in weight was sold in st petersburg at least one hundred pairs of tusks are still sent to the market every year many limestone caves contain large quantities of animal remains but stalagmite is not such a good preserver as ice and nothing is left but bones most of which are broken rubbed rolled or polished as if they had been carried long distances by water often no doubt the animals were surprised by sudden torrents carried into the caves and buried in mud over which a crust of stalagmite afterwards was formed but often also they lived and died on the spot where their remains are found at least three hundred hyenas of different ages were buried in the kirkdale cavern in yorkshire which contains also the bones of wolves bears birds etc and as all the latter are gnawed while the former are not we may conclude that the cave was once the home of many generations of hyenas and that the other animals were only dragged there to be devoured in other caves the bones of hundreds of cave bears wolves lions tigers as well as of the mammoth have been similarly preserved in stalagmite to tell us something about the animal population of europe in past ages other caves are however even more interesting than these since they contain the dust heaps or kitchen middens not of animals but of men the cave at carrigagour in the county of cork for instance shows us that it was inhabited in ancient times by people who lived to a large extent on beef mutton and pork 
but had no more idea than the hyenas of keeping their dust-heaps outside their houses. They ate their food and threw the bones down on the mud floor, perhaps for their cats and dogs, whose remains are also found, and they stabled their horses in the cave with themselves. Sometimes they caught hares and rabbits, and they fed largely upon mollusks, especially limpets, periwinkles, and garden snails, whose shells are found in great numbers. The earlier inhabitants of the cave had stones for hammers and flint flakes for knives, but they were followed by others who were more civilized, and possessed iron knives, an iron chisel, and a nail, and must have cultivated some sort of grain since the upper stone of a quern or hand-mill has been discovered. In Denmark there are old dust-heaps from three to ten feet high, and from a hundred to a thousand feet long, which contain implements of stone, horn, bone, and wood, fragments of rude pottery, charcoal, cinders, and the bones of many animals, some of which, such as the beaver, do not now live there. On the coast of Peru, and a few miles inland, there are shell-heaps more than a hundred and eighty feet high and above three hundred in diameter, which have been preserved from decay partly by the growth of vegetation, and partly by a thick crust of carbonate of lime which has been formed on the surface by the action of the rain. These great heaps contain charcoal, ashes, stones blackened by fire, the bones of fishes and birds, especially parrots, splintered human bones and stone axes, and are evidently the refuse remains of countless savage banquets. Similar shell-heaps are found everywhere in the Fiji Islands. Others, which are probably relics of the bushmen, occur at the Cape of Good Hope, and contain limpets so large as to be good drinking cups. In Australia the shell-mounds left by the natives are so large and numerous that white men have worked all their lives at sifting out the undecomposed shells to be burnt for lime. Crows and even vultures do something towards raising heaps of shells. Above a hundred of the former have been seen together feeding on mussels, and Mr. Barrow says that on one occasion, in a cavern at the point of Mussel Bay, he disturbed thousands of birds and saw heaps of empty shells enough to fill some thousands of wagons. The ancient races inhabiting the pile dwellings, whose remains were first discovered about thirty years ago in some of the Swiss lakes, instead of piling their rubbish around them, which would have been inconvenient, threw it into the water, where enough has been preserved in the mud to give us a tolerably good idea of their manner of life. Piles were driven into the bed of the lake and connected by timbers, and upon this common platform each family had its own hut, with a trap-door in the floor for the convenience of fishing, and no doubt also for getting rid of their rubbish. There must have been a large settlement on the Lake of Geneva, for the piles extend twelve hundred feet along the shore, and a hundred and fifty feet into the lake. Many other colonies must have been of considerable size, for thousands of piles are found still firmly fixed in the mud, and at Wangen, on Lake Constance, more than thirteen hundred articles of stone, bone, and pottery have been recovered. The huts were made of twigs, woven together and plastered inside with clay, 
and the inhabitants had not only abundance of fishes but the flesh of stags goats wild boars and foxes which last they seem to have eaten in great quantities to judge from the number of bones the earliest lake dwellers had none but stone implements and were contemporary with the elephant and rhinoceros somewhat later we find that deer wild boars and wild oxen were still abundant and later still a generation rose up which had learnt the use of metal for their tools and implements were made of bronze which is a mixture of copper and tin as tin was from the very earliest times brought chiefly from cornwall we must conclude that the people of the bronze period had some indirect dealings with the inhabitants of great britain and therefore knew something of trade their pottery is much finer in texture and more elegant in shape than that of their predecessors and they had made other advances towards civilization having learnt to keep domestic animals to eat beef pork and goat's flesh to cultivate wheat and barley and to weave cloth of flax and straw they even wore necklaces bracelets hairpins and safety pins and they made a kind of bread of the wholemeal or rather whole grain variety the grains being roasted slightly ground and merely pressed into lumps from the seeds and stones yet remaining we find that they had plums raspberries and apples and they also had hazel and beech nuts whose shells with all their other refuse they threw into the water never dreaming that centuries and even thousands of years after they themselves were gone it would be brought to light and examined with the deepest interest by the learned men of a new era End of chapter 16.